This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. London to Chicago, do you read me? London to Chicago, do you read me? This is Chicago. This is Chicago. I just blew in from the Windy City. Roger. Yes. Or Jeff, should I say? Jeff is my preferred. Or Jeffrey, perhaps. Only to my mother, Edward. Right, okay, fine. Yes. Hello. Hello, it's our first transatlantic podcast. I'm so excited. Are you having a nice time? I'm having a lovely time. Shall I tell you where I'm sitting at the moment? Go on, yeah. I'll paint the picture. I'm in downtown Chicago, and I'm in um, I'm in an empty business lounge. Sounds glamorous. My brother-in-law, he has a very good um, food concession at a food hall here. I'm not so, not not like you think you just get it at a shopping precinct. This is a high-end hipster food hall. What kind of food? He serves classic American sandwiches. Uh, he wow. has a, it's called the Fat Shallot. Wow. And he's very kindly uh, let me use the business lounge above his sandwich shop so that I can record my end of the podcast here in the Windy City in Chicago. Wow, that sounds amazing. Have you been eating his sandwiches as well? Oh, my God. Whenever I come to America, I just gorge on food. I know they say the portion sizes are huge over here, and there is some truth to that, but there is something about getting off a plane over here which they, I, I think gives me permission to actively try and become obese, and I've really been making good headway into that. What's your favourite American sandwich? Well, I like a grilled cheese, which is, you know, it's the American version of a cheese on toast, but it's done with a bit of pizzazz, some caramelised onions. And well, let's give a shout-out to your, is it your brother-in-law's food concession stand? Yeah, so if you are ever in Chicago, their sandwich place is called the Fat Shallot or Shallot. Right. Shall I start by giving you my reason to be cheerful? Well, tell us about your holiday so far. Maybe that is your reason to be cheerful. It is. And I had a particularly interesting conversation with an Uber driver over here. In fact, coming from the station to record the podcast today. So I get in the back of this Uber and the guy says, oh, you're British. And I say, yeah, yes, I am. And I think I'm not really, it's quite early in the morning here. So I'm not in a great mood for making lots of small talk, but I'm so needy to be liked that I feel that I need to join in. So I said, yes, I am. And he says, so how are things going with Brexit then? Well, interesting. Well-informed and- Uber driver. Well, this this is the thing. When you're in that situation, you don't know whether he's pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit. And I don't want to take a position. I have my position in real life. But what I don't want to do is get into any kind of debate about it. I think, is he one of these Trump guys? Is he not a Trump guy? So I, I, I give what I think is a very diplomatic answer, which is, oh, it's just chaos over there at the moment. That's, that's a good answer, right? Yeah, it's, it's accurate. Nothing's changed since you left. No more resignations, but the Chancellor said there's no unemployment. So oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's the sort of only update, really. So I say to him, um, uh, I give that as my answer, it's chaos. And he says, what do you think the Queen thinks about it? So I say, oh, the Queen isn't allowed to have any opinions um, uh, because she's not democratically elected. She has to keep her opinions to herself. He says, oh, right, I see. Um, and then he says, do you know that some people on the Internet say that the, the Queen is an alien? And what I have to judge in that moment... Oh, lummy I have to, doodahs. I have to judge in that moment whether he thinks the Queen is an alien or whether he's telling me because he thinks it's a funny thing that crazy people think yeah. on the internet. I decide it's the latter. And I say, well, you know what people are like? They're crazy. And he says, I'm not so sure. You know, there was a thing on the British Parliament website a few weeks ago where they accidentally put up a page <laughs> saying... Uh, 
our queen, we accept you and we still respect you and we will still be your loyal subjects even though you're an alien. Like British Parliament has a page in waiting for the day that it is ultimately revealed. Where did you begin? What did you do? I know. What did you do? Did you just sort of nod politely then? I, I pretended to take a phone call. That's my usual get-out strategy. So... Thanksgiving is a big deal. Well, my mother-in-law loves Thanksgiving. Her house is bedecked with a thousand turkeys. Not real ones. She has various turkey ornaments around the place. And the, um, you know, the big bone of contention has been whether her friend Peggy Lemley, who always comes and spends Thanksgiving with them, whether Peggy puts lard in the pies or not. Because... Um, I'm a vegetarian, and it hadn't previously been considered. Oh, right. And, and what, has, what has been concluded? It's inconclusive, but at the moment we think there is no lard in the pies. It's too close to call on the lard. <laughs> and you've not seen any, like, famous celebrities, Barack Obama wandering around or anything like that? No, but Obama was in town somewhat recently because he got called for jury service. So he had to turn up to report for jury service. Oh, there were great pictures of him arriving for jury service, weren't they? So he still has his Chicago connections. And what does it feel like being in America with Trump and all of that stuff going on? I mean, does it feel absolutely sort of crazy? I mean, obviously, Brexit gives us our own problems. But does it feel, does it feel different than when you've been there before? So last year it definitely did because last year when I was here, I wasn't here for Thanksgiving, I was here slightly before and it was when the Republican primaries were still going on. So I was watching the debates on the television. If you remember that famous television debate where Donald Trump is being challenged by the others about his hand size um, and how that relates to his penis size. And I remember watching that and thinking, this, th we're in a whole new paradigm here. This, this, surely this man has no future in politics. This, this isn't going to fly. And a year later it just just feels uh, it feels all too real and all too bleak because he did that incredibly weird tweet about the UCLA basketball players who had been arrested in China for shoplifting or something and he managed to get them out and then their father said something disparaging about Trump and then Trump tweeted I wish I'd left them in jail I know I know I know I think part of this is that we get overly focused on his tweets and meanwhile, they're like, you know, trying to cut taxes for the rich, you know, in an absolutely massive way and all of that. It's great news for anybody who owns a private jet. The private jet tax cut. Yeah. I don't think there was one of those in the budget, as far as I know. <laughs> um, so do you want to know my reason to be cheerful? It's yes. It's also yes. got a foreign trip feel to it. Yes, um, please. So I was in Sweden, which I previewed last week for this conference. You're in Göteborg. Gothenburg, yeah. Yes. Well, I was in Gothenburg and then Stockholm, actually. But the, the Gothenburg trip part of the trip was fine. I mean, there were a few sort of in the trip, there are a few kind of mini disasters. So I was the last speaker at this conference. The headliner. I don't know if that's the headliner. But anyway, the, the problem was that the there was an informal European heads of government meeting um taking place at exactly the same time, which and, and this conference had been planned two years in advance. And it was in exactly the same place. In exactly, they were staying in exactly the same hotel. In fact, Theresa May was arriving shortly after me. And the problem was there was a lockdown. <laughs> and the problem is that if you have a lockdown, it makes it rather hard for audience members to arrive. And about <laughs> about 10 minutes before, there was a, 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 a kind of venue which I'd say had about 1,000 seats, and there were literally 10 people in the audience. 
And I thought, my God, this is, I'm like, I never had quite that experience. Now, fortunately, we ended up with like 100 people. So, so which is probably a generous estimate, you know what I mean? That's like the, the demonstrator. <laughs> you're, round, you're rounding the up. The demonstrator's there. estimate, not the police estimate. But I mean, it was, right. it was near to 100 people. So it was kind of, it was kind of respectable. But, but so, so there, there was that. The next day, we were actually in Stockholm the next day. It was incredibly cold, and we mm. got, went out of the cold into a cafe. And I start, and I was, there was probably the FT on the table. I started reading the FT. I hadn't realised that they obviously have a nice Swedish tradition of having candles on the table. Anyway, the FT got set on fire, <laughs> and there were all these Swedes sort of looking like who's this British guy? He turns out to be an arsonist. Uh, anyway, we then sort of damped out the fire. I'm, I'm very pleased that you're owning your own clumsiness. Here, I, I totally am. Honestly, I totally am. Um, so. Uh, but there's a serious point to this. You know, we talk a lot about gender equality and the way the Swedes have a great reputation for this. But honestly, just seeing is believing. Being there, I've obviously been there before, but be, being there and seeing it is incredible. So at this speech, uh, I ran into this bloke who started speaking to me in Swedish, which, you know, my Swedish is rusty. Uh, and uh, so I didn't know what he was talking about. And then he recognized me and he said to me in a broad Portsmouth accent, which I won't. Um, try and emulate he said oh it's you he said oh Ed Miliband how are you etc etc anyway I said well what are you doing here and he said oh well I married a Sweden I'm here because the parental leave provisions are so good and the childcare and all that and I said oh would you mind doing a little interview with me about it and he was working at the conference venue and so it was slightly an odd thing to ask but he was he obliged so we're going to play you a little bit of the interview Richard very good to talk to you oh thank you very much yes thank um, you. So you were telling me that you moved to Sweden or, or like living in Sweden partly because of the parental leave arrangements. As a parent, you get, uh, for each child, uh, a certain amount of days, paid 80%, and it's, it's quite a substantial amount of days. Uh, and uh, with me and my wife, we, we shared the time as well, so that we actually got a bonus from the state for sharing the time equally with the children. So. And you got basically, you told me, 17 months off for two children oh, paid at 80% it. of your wages. Yeah, of the two children I spent 17. Most of that was 80%, not all of it, actually. How much of a difference does that make you as a dad? Oh, it's massive. And the relationship I have with my, my sons now, I'm not saying you can't have a great relationship without it, but for me it's been absolutely massive. I wouldn't have had it any other Much way. easier than it would have been in Britain. Much easier than it would have been in Britain without them. So you're not coming back any time soon? I, I'm, I, I won't be, no. Not, not any time soon. Anything else about Sweden that you like? Uh, the access to nature. Um, beautiful country. And there's things I miss about England as well. But, uh, yes. but certainly when it comes to parental leave and childcare, Sweden to, wins. Yeah, absolutely. Hands down. OK, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you very much. So, so he talks about the 17 months. I mean, just to emphasise this point, Jeff. Yeah. 17 months paternity leave to look after his two kids. You know, you heard him talking there about the kind of relationship he had with them. And just to be clear about the entitlement in, in Sweden, parents are entitled to 480 days of paid parental leave when a child is born or adopted. For 390 of the days, parents are entitled to nearly 80% of their normal pay. Benefits are calculated on a maximum monthly income of 37,000 crowns. So I think that's about £3,000 a month. That's the maximum that's you right, can yeah. get. Uh, the remaining 90 days, to get up to 480, are paid at a flat rate, so you don't get the full 80%. Um, and you can take it up to the child being, um, I think, eight years old, and each parent is entitled to half the day, so 240 of the 480 days. Yeah. Each parent has 90 days reserved exclusively for him or her. So um, if you don't, 
you know, if I think a mother can take up to 390 days or a father, but if you don't, you can't take all of the days on your yourself, you've got to allow the other parent to take them, or it's kind of use it or lose it, they call it. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you know, that's the sort of technicalities. But just to sort of paint a picture of this, you know, being in Stockholm, we were in a taxi on the Friday morning. And you just see lots of dads pushing prams. They call them um, latte papas. Unless they're lactose intolerant, of course. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, you just wouldn't see that in London. And, and you know, you heard Richard talk about his relationship. So, so that is one reason to be cheerful. The combination of the gender equality, the childcare, you know, and that just makes a massive, just makes a massive difference to the fabric of the society, I think. And and not only that, I mean, the Swedish welfare state has changed a lot in the past twenty years, but it's still um, it's still very comprehensive, and they're making sure that half the workforce isn't excluded from from paying taxes and paying into that welfare state and keeping the fabulous system afloat. Mind you, there's a mystery to me, which is that the gen- there's still a gender pay gap of thirteen percent. Now that's partly because where women are concentrated in terms of the profession, so that is still a challenge they've got, and they accept that challenge, but. But you know, there's a double effect, which is it, um, it it kind of balances out at the workplace, or it should at least balance out the roles of women and men. Mm. So it's not just women taking time off. And it also changes the relationship of men with their kids. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I mean, uh, and, you know, we've got a pathetic two weeks. We have got a pathetic, yeah, I, I know from experiences, I'm sure you do too. To be fair, as somebody pointed out in a response to something we did on this previously, when we did the Jess Phillips episode on gender pay, I think there is some sharing that can now happen uh, between mm. men and women. Um, sh- there's a sort of leave sharing uh, provision. So so the nine months maternity leave, some of that can be taken by the by the father, but it's still way, way, way uh, worse than... Uh, Worse than Sweden. It's just it's just a different yeah. world. But but then the other thing, just to sort of bore on about this for a bit longer, is that on the Friday night, uh, not setting anyone on fire, I had dinner with some friends of mine and the um, foreign minister, Margot Wallström. And you know, she has carried this idea of gender equality into foreign policy. And actually, when she arrived as foreign minister in 2014, she said, right, I'm going to have a feminist foreign policy. And she was heated, she was greeted actually, even in Sweden, somewhat with howls of derision. But nobody is deriding her now because actually, you know, it's become an accepted part of the landscape. She's won awards for this. How does that manifest itself then? What does what does that mean? Well, they, there's good stuff which we'll provide a link to on their website. It's about full expression of human rights for women and girls. It's about freedom from violence. Um, it's about the role of women in mediation. It's about po- political participation by women, economic empowerment of women, and sexual and reproductive health and rights. So what she's doing is she's sort of you know, giving this feminist um, drive to, to foreign policy because it's part of what Sweden can do around the world. And she was saying to me that actually you know, in different countries which are engaging in, say, peace efforts, they've said to her, it's really made a difference, the writing in of women's rights into the way foreign policy works, the way Sweden approaches these things. So I think it is a really sort of interesting uh, idea about how you can have a, a, a different novel approach to foreign policy. Well, I'm very envious of you. I think you and I should go on a mini break to Stockholm sometime. Definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm not suggesting it should be Valentine's weekend. <laughs> No, I'm busy that weekend, sorry. <laughs> shall, we, uh, shall we talk about what we have coming up? Yeah, I'm hoping you're going to deliver Barack Obama for us on this week's podcast. Is that right? You give me his address and I will go and stand outside his house with a placard. 
Do you think that's a good idea? Do you have a better idea? I, I think I wouldn't want to be responsible for you uh, being arrested. Well, given that I thought you might not be able to get Barack Obama, um, <laughs> we are going to be talking about something which is intimately connected to Barack Obama, which is the issue of community organising. Now, community organising is a buzz phrase in lots of circles at the moment. I, I, the way I think about it is that on the podcast, we've featured lots of ideas for changing uh, the country ideas about what government can do. Community organising really says, what can people do to change things themselves? And Chicago is seen as the home of community organising by lots of people. Uh, Saul Alinsky, the, uh, a man who wrote a book called Rules for Radicals uh, about community organising, uh, came from uh, Chicago. Barack Obama is obviously from Chicago, was trained as a community organiser uh, in Chicago and, and worked there as a community organiser. And so we are interviewing Jerry Kelman, who trained Barack Obama uh, about community organising, what can we learn from it? And then we're also going to be talking to somebody called Dan Firth. He's somebody uh, who used to be at Citizens UK, which is an organization uh, that works on community organizing, campaign for the living wage and other things. He now runs an organization called uh, We Can Win, uh, which takes that idea and, and extends it in the kind of campaigns it can work on. And he's also worked with me uh, in Doncaster on a local campaign there. So we're going to be talking to Jerry and Dan about, you know, how can community organising transform our society here in the UK? What does it actually mean uh, and how should we implement it? And in addition to that, I have found a comedian over here who's going to pitch ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. She's called Emily Galati. She's really funny. Um, I was watching clips of her on Conan O'Brien's late night talk show and she's really good. Uh, so she's going to be coming in to see if, uh, if she can give us reasons to be cheerful now let's have a bit of disclosure so you're you're watching conan o'brien do you basically i sort of got a picture of you sort of sitting on your mother-in-law's sort of sofa late at night kind of channel hopping between conan o'brien um jimmy fallon and all of that is, is that is that have i got have i painted the picture right you do yeah stephen colbert's show is the one over here at the moment trump has been a real boon for him he's because uh, he was lagging behind in the ratings he took over from david letterman and um he was in third place but since trump got elected it's it's just been this great time for satirists yeah and, and what about fox news how much of fox news have you been watching that's what i do the rest of the day <laughs> yeah exactly fair and balanced yeah. reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd so i'm sitting 17 floors up in the Chicago skyline, in the headquarters of the Woodstock Institute, with, I think it's fair to call you a veteran of community organising. Are, are you happy with that? It's a nice way to say I'm old. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Silverback. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Jerry Kelman, yeah. hello. Good afternoon. Can you start off really by explaining what community organising is in the sense of your career and the work that you've done? Community organising and, and a lot of uh, social movements occurred, you know, in the past 56 years at the same time. So I initially um, got involved in the civil rights movement. I'm, I'm that old in, in my hometown, which was the first northern city to be uh, desegregated by uh, the Supreme Court of the United States. And I got involved in the civil rights movement, and then it was the time of the Vietnam War. And I got involved in activities to try to bring that to an end. A lot of things on campuses. Uh, and then I eventually heard of Alinsky, and I learned about community organizing. And, uh, uh, you know, organizing is trying to uh, give people um, uh, a voice where they don't have one. Uh, it's giving them a share of power where they don't, where they don't have that. And also 
uh, we think of it as a as a way to um, educate people uh, of of large scale public education. Um, right now, we, we have, I've taken on a project in Appalachia, and, and Appalachia is it's a very poor part of the country, but it's also mostly white, and so it's very heavy. Uh, not a lot of voters for Donald Trump are kind of out of that area. The right. question is, how do you, you know, can you change their perspective since they seem to be voting against their self-interest? They seem to be voting for um, less services, <laughs> for higher taxes. You know, can they learn that? So it's people who are disengaged a lot of the time from Washington politics. Yeah, so uh, they, they don't have any experience of what's happening. You know, they're out, they're out there and they're watching TV. But um, so from an organizing perspective, um, we can talk to them, we can... We can make arguments. If you don't actually do something, you don't learn. It's sort of a, a, a university of, of public life to engage in a community organi- organization around things you care about close to home. So what does that look like on a practical basis what, in terms of going into those communities? What, what are you actually doing? Yes. So first and most fundamental tool of organizing uh, is to talk to people one-on-ones. So I, in a given day, I would talk to 10 people. And in that process learn about the area from their perspective, but also begin to form a relationship and begin to uh, get a sense about what it might take to get this person to take a step forward in a different kind of way. Uh, we might not tackle a root cause right away. We might try to go slowly, but eventually we're, we're, we're looking at the root causes. Why, why, why does it happen? Not how do we treat the symptoms of it? And there's a lot of history of community organizing here in Chicago. It's the, the birthplace, really, of that in America. It is. It is. And that's because uh, uh, Alinsky was mentored by John L. Lewis, who was one of the significant labor leaders in the United States. And his thing was to build coalitions and to do it around diversity. And so that's, that's really a key point of, of organizing, I think, is um, ultimately, uh, if you can't bring people who have differences together. So Alinsky's language would, you, would be self-interest. I, I, I tend not to use self-interest these days. I talk about uh, what it takes for people to change their lives. And I say, if you can initiate relationships based on mutuality, you can change your life. But if you can't do that, and that, include, that involves, of course, an understanding of uh, the other person's uh, sense of where they want to go, as well as yourself. And unequal relationships are the source of much that's uh, wrong in the world and in our lives. So, so I read a, um, a story about Alinsky uh, in, in, in preparing to, to talk to you, Jerry, which is that he would ask his new students why they wanted to organize. And, and apparently they would invariably respond with, with this, this article called selfless bromides about wanting to help others. Alinsky would then scream back at them that it was a one-word answer. And he would say, you want to organize for power. Yes. Is that right? Well, that's, that, well, that's true. And you would get yelled at a lot, Ed. <laughs> Part of the technique of the training, uh, uh, I don't know how you would use it, but it's, it's called agitation. To find out what people say they want to do and then challenge them around their own values. That if, you, if, if this is what you say you want to do, then why are you doing it? Or not even, not even getting that admission of what you want to do, but looking at the situation and, and just asking, well, why do, you, why do you live this way, right? Why do you put up with this? So kind of a pushing people to reexamine um, uh, whether they're uh, serious about what they want to do. And that was, that was one way they did that. I think that we now kind of look at people in a deeper kind of way. I mean, we look at the, that they want power, but we also try to understand their story. There's a lot with narrative. I think narrative is fairly important, helping people understand their lives was individually and collectively. Alinsky was a storyteller, but I don't think he, he used that, you know, as powerfully as, as we now we know we need to. I know that you talked to David Axelrod last week, and, you know, and, and David's uh, 
insight into Obama was he had the story was going to get him elected. If he could tell Obama the first time, not the yeah. second time. Second time, nobody cared about that. They cared about what happened in office. But the first time, narrative is very crucial. So in addition to understanding, um, you know, that without power, this is what happens to you, just people understanding the, you know, their own story and the story of collectively what's happened to them, I think is, I think is pretty critical. And who controls the narrative, how that narrative is told, I think that's all, all things that uh, we now value, you know, much more, um, you know, uh, 60 years later. Which brings us to a point in your career yes. where you are looking for a charismatic African-American who can yes. uh, unite the community. So you, you place a newspaper advert. This is how the story I do. Goes. It was so it's always hard to find organizers. If you're smart enough to be an organizer, because it's hard work, you need to be fairly bright. You should be smart enough not to be an organizer, because if you can do the work, you can make a lot more money <laughs> with a lot less grief doing something else. And in those years, uh, a lot of opportunities were blocked for higher education for African-Americans. If you found somebody who could do this work, they could do many other things. But I, so it was hard and put together a bunch of resumes. And I got this resume from Barack Obama. Uh, and my wife is Japanese. Obama's a Japanese name. If you talk to him on the phone, you don't really know what you can you know, he doesn't speak with the regional dialect of any kind. So it took me about 35 minutes to determine that he actually was African-American. Right. So wait, I talked to him. I, I went out to New York, to Manhattan, where he was, he'd lived for a year after graduating school in Columbia. And uh, my, my parents lived. And we did a two-hour interview, and I offered him $12,000. And uh, he said, I don't have a car, so I gave him another 2000 <laughs> And a month later, he was in Chicago. How much do you think his strategy uh, for, for what he became and but also his viewpoint was shaped by community organizing? So I think dramatically. It's hard to separate his experience of Chicago from organizing. They were both transformative. He had never lived in an African-American community himself. His, you know, his folks, his, uh, his mom was white. His, his dad was African. Um, and so that was a, a huge experience to be inside a community like this. Um, just exposure to the way politics is... Uh, is practice in Chicago, uh, and uh, uh, you know the cynicism, <laughs> you know which 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 happens, and and how the system works. So it's a tremendous political education and personal education to start with. On top of that is was the organizing, and I and I for better or worse, I think that uh, um, Obama's sense of uh, trying to get what's realistic, you know, to to cut a deal to get as much as you can. Um, which he didn't deviate. Only once did in eight years did I see him deviate from that was around gun control when he just uh, he was just you know too devastated right by yeah. the death of children and he you know he took out a fight that he knew he was going to you know they, he wasn't going to win. But other than that, I think his sense of um, how you uh, uh, how you put together uh, as much as you can get, but you don't go after more more than is possible. The 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 idea of a realistic sense. Um, I think. Uh, 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 he, he's a remarkable uh, listener. I mean, that's obviously we have politicians who can be successful without listening to people, but so his listening was honed very, very, very firmly. Um, the sense of defining himself, which can be very difficult um, if you're uh, um, black and middle class, because people would kind of uh, um, make assumptions about him based on the fact of how he talked and where he went to school. And, and some would say that, gee, isn't he wonderful? And some would say, He's an outsider. He's not one of us. And it all had nothing to do with him. Yeah. So he, ha he had to define himself. And in politics, that's what you have to do. You have to define yourself and not let others define you. And I think there were two forms of experiences, um, the Chicago experience of organizing and this experience at Harvard Law School. 
and they're very different experiences, right? One's a grassroots experience, one's an elite experience, and you probably need both at some, you know, uh, at, for what he wanted to do. Uh, and you could see sometimes, if you watched him, those two influences kind of <laughs> warring with each other, right? Uh, I think. so. Uh, but yes, I think that his whole perspective on politics, how to draw people in, how to, how to make a compromise, um, uh, was, you know, was significantly shaped um, by his time in Chicago. If someone had um, come into that a cafe and tapped you on the shoulder from 2008 and said, you're having a conversation with the first black yeah. president of the United States, what would you have said? I said, there won't be a black president of the United States. <laughs> Interesting. They, they were, were no, none of us, none of us believed that were possible, Ed. We really didn't. Barack didn't. No, 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 uh, no sophisticated person. In politics, African American or white, who who worked on that side of the political spectrum, would believe that America would elect a black president, and it was an extraordinary set of circumstances, you know, that be, you know, that 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 led to that. When I met Obama, he he's, he sort of wanted to become a novelist. I mean, he he was interested in in, in organizing, and he was uh, he was heroes with the civil rights movement. He saw this as kind of a, a way to do that, since there was no civil rights movement. But it wasn't clear that that you know he wanted to pursue that, and that that happened in Chicago too. That you know he moved to deciding he wanted to be part of electoral politics. Um, but the idea of I, I think he wanted to be mayor of Chicago. I mean, <laughs> I don't think the aspiration to be president was could have been could have been on the board for any of us. So. Uh, uh, and but if you're asking me what was he like at at 26, um, you know all of the personality traits that that you that we now all know from watching him publicly uh, were, were very much present when he was uh, 26. But uh, lack of confidence, not nearly as guarded, you know, what you would expect. And with the country as divided as it is at the moment, and this is true back in the UK to a large extent with Brexit, do do you see that uh, community organising? Could, could be a thing to kind of heal those divides, heal those rifts? Well, I don't know if it'll heal it. I suspect it'll, it'll ensure that the right side wins, I would say. You know, I, I think we're going through transition. I, I'm not, I mean, I, I finished an interview with a French reporter. It was right after Trump was elected. He said, I've never met anybody as optimistic as you. And I said, that's because you haven't talked to Obama. Um, you know, I, this is, I think we're going to see reactions to this. I think we're going through tremendous changes in, in both countries. You know, I think just the demographics of, of race and, and all of that is, is changing and changing things. Um, and uh, there's been so much change in the United States that there was bound to be a reaction. And the, the way the particular reaction happened and the distastefulness of Donald Trump is probably a, a unique you know, aspect of that. But we were going to see a reaction regardless. But I think history, history is very much moving towards a... Uh, uh, a different different scenario, and uh, uh, I think that uh, um, you know, so Linsky would say, the action is in the reaction, and and by that he would mean that um, by the mistakes that your you know your opponents would make because because they were stupid and they were arrogant, you know you would you would change America. So Donald Trump is educating people. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's yes, there are people who are dug in and, and not, not paying attention, but there's large numbers of people who are being politicized. For a long time, young adults had not become involved in, in these kind of activities. That changed with Obama. There were two groups that responded the most deeply to him, African-Americans and young adults. And uh, that's changing more now. I mean, I think it's uh, with women. I mean, I, I think that uh, Donald Trump is changing American suburbs in terms of politically. I mean, so um, 
but we, I think it's transition that we're going through, and, and organizing will help shape that transition, help educate that transition, and help reclaim an interpersonal sphere. I think there are limitations to social media. I mean, no, nobody would be advised not to, you know, not to utilize social media to some extent. But I think fundamentally, if we can uh, uh, still work locally and relationally, that's extremely powerful. And uh, that's where you start. I've got one other question, Jerry. It's, it's, inc- it's incredibly moving and fascinating to talk to you. What, what do you think politicians and political parties can learn from the techniques of community organizing? So Litsky was part of a larger philosophy about uh, mediating the institutions and that, uh, that people needed institutions uh, to help them move in the public sphere. So unions and churches and social clubs and uh, PT, parent-teacher associations. Um, and there's been a severe weakening of that. I think it can re- be rebuilt. I think it can re- be reclaimed. And I think you, you, have to be, uh, you have to be out there. I mean, uh, it, it's clear that um, uh, the Clinton command claim campaign was misguided, right, on many levels. But the most fundamental level is whether she really was out there, whether she really campaigned. I mean, people spoke about uh, Obama not liking campaign. Indeed, probably there was aspects of politics he didn't like. What he mostly didn't like was the phone calls to raise the money, right, they have to make all day. But in Iowa, he must have talked to 30,000 people. And there's a story about a, a well-known politician, Tip O'Neill, who was Speaker of the House of the United States under Reagan. And it was Reagan's nemesis. First time he ran for state representative in Boston, he lost. And he bumped into somebody and he said, too bad you lost, Tip. And Tip said, well, did you vote for me? And he said, uh, no, I didn't. And he said, why didn't you vote for me? Well, he said, you never asked me. And from that day on, he, ran, he knocked on every door, you know, it's for the rest of his story. life, of his district. And made, well, I heard at his funeral, by the way. That's a good story. <laughs> anyway, that's part of it. Did the, Hillary Clinton never asked. And if you're somebody who's listening to this podcast who's not a member of a political party, not a politician, but you think there's something I want to change about my community or my workplace, my ne- wider neighborhood, what would your advice to them be? Well, I think you can't change it alone. So um, I think change of, of community is done with other people. And you have to gather other people. There's a group of, uh, of uh, parents in Chicago. And these are just, um, they're mainly moms. And they just, they just got so fed up with the Chicago school system, they, they formed a group called Raise Your Hand Coalition. They had no Linsky. They had no professional organizer. And they have now become the, the most important voice for parents in one of the biggest school systems in the country. And they're not winning everything, but they made a huge difference. So, but if they had not gathered together, and they had not trusted themselves and their own resources. So I, I'd say you have to find people who are, who are like-minded, number one. And then you have to uh, uh, be willing to link up with some other people who aren't quite as like-minded, but who you have enough in common with to take the next step forward. Uh, I, you know, there's lots we could say, but that, that would be my initial, initial answer. That's a great summary. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Jerry, Good it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, even transatlantic. Uh, I'm sorry I'm True. not there, but it's a re- real honor to talk to you. Thank you. Well, good luck to you all there, because uh, there's a lot, lot to do. <laughs> Thanks. So listening to all that here in London uh, with me is somebody called Dan Firth, who's the founder and director of an organization called We Can Win, and was formerly an organizer with Citizens UK, an organization that campaigns for the living wage and other things uh, in the UK. And I'll, I'll just tell a little bit of a story before I introduce Dan um, about how I met Dan. After I lost the general election in 2015, uh, I was feeling somewhat sorry for myself. And 
Uh, somebody I know said to me, look, you should really go on this training program that Citizens UK has for charities, other people who are interested in knowing what community organising uh, really is about. So I kind of hummed and awed about it, but I ended up doing it in the autumn of 2015. And so I went to this um, Salvation Army Centre in South London where the training was happening on the Monday morning. And people looked somewhat surprised to see me uh, there. And I kind of was slightly wondering what I was doing there. But I've honestly got to say to you, Jeff, it was a I found it an incredibly transformative experience and, and, and listening to Jerry sort of reminded me, and I suppose, and we'll get into this with Dan, I suppose I found it transformative partly because it just taught me a different way to think about leadership, that leadership is collective, not just individual, and part of being a leader is getting other people to be leaders. Right. And, second, and secondly, it taught me something about sort of power, that power isn't just you get into government, you seize the levers of power. But one of the things that was really drummed into me at this training, including by Dan, was everyone has power or everyone has a capacity to have power. Even if they think they're powerless, if they band together with others, as Jerry was just saying, you can be powerful or you can exercise some power. So we'll come to how other people can do training like it at the end. But thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Give us your reaction, first of all, to listening to... Jerry, because he sort of reaches back to Alinsky as well as to Obama, but reaches back to Alinsky. He's obviously the, one of the founding, the, the founding father, I suppose, of the community organising movement. Yeah, it's, uh, it was fascinating to, to hear him speak. Uh, well, actually, I would say he also talked to, about the civil rights movement as well, which I think also has a really rich history of organising that, you know, we tend to hear a lot about Alinsky um, and the relationship with um, Obama, obviously, but also the civil rights movement had um, some amazing organisers, such as Ella Baker, who ran the Highlander Centre, which basically trained Martin Luther King in organising. Right, um, so it's a very proud tradition. So, there's a, so there is a real proud tradition there, and uh, a lot of organisers like myself, you know, are part of that tradition and stand on the shoulders of, of giants, really. Dev, tell us, because Jerry gave his definition about what community organising uh, was about. Give us your definition. Um, so, there's, I mean, there's a, a lot of stuff that I can totally relate to with, with what Jerry's saying. With We Can Win, one of the things that I am really uh, wanted to do with it, actually, was to, to put more emphasis onto this idea that actually ordinary people are leaders. And so it doesn't have to be, you know, we're, go we're, we're going through changes uh, in our institutions. There's less people going to churches. There's less people going to um, uh, parts of trade unions. Um, and but there are lots of ordinary people who feel locked out of politics. And so the kind of model that I've really been developing with We Can Win, which is which is, is similar in lots of ways to, to Jerry's, is this idea that we really need to invigorate ordinary people's political participation. If you look at our country now, you know, we've got 500,000 people who are basically using food banks. Um, we've got such high levels of inequality, stagnating wages, and ordinary people are at the sharp end of that. Um, and so organising, for me, is a real way that actually we can get ordinary people who are um, at the sharp end of all of this, organising politically. And for people listening to this and thinking, well, inequality is a terrible problem, food banks are a terrible problem, stagnating wages are a terrible problem, but how can I as an individual 
do anything about that? What, what would your answer be? And, and, and feel free to draw on some of your own experiences as a community sure. organiser. There are two things, really. Like, I think... Um there are huge opportunities which we just don't realise. I mean, Jerry, Jerry made the point that we need to... It's very difficult to do things by ourselves um, to make a change. Um, and actually, if we come together, uh, we, build, we build power. We build power in relationships with other people. And then through that process, we find the big issues that matter to us. Uh, and this is something that I've done for a long time. Um, and recently, one of the big things that... Uh, one of the big campaigns that I have worked on was uh, a programme uh, where we got young, pe- young people in East London who were in the kind of area around the city of London where 30% of young people are either out of work or um, struggling w- within high levels of poverty. But actually in that territory, there's also been a growth of technology businesses, uh, which is called Tech City. And... Um, the businesses I was hearing were complaining that they couldn't recruit any talented people. But I was working in the local neighbourhoods and meeting hundreds, if not thousands of young people who were talented and skilled, but just didn't have the family networks or the opportunities. So I used organising as a model of actually building op- job opportunities uh, for young people from around the area and expanded um, to bigger than that as well, um, to get jobs within the within the tech industry. Um, and so in a way, the idea of that is these young people in Hackney might have thought they had no power, right. but they had sort of relational power. Right, had relational uh, power. To, and, and by banding together, they could essentially... I would say embarrassed a little bit, the, the businesses um, locally, to, to ensure that they were... Um, that they were, you know, uh, looking closer to home to recruit people as well. Um, so it was, it, and for a lot of those young people, it, that was some of the first political action that they'd ever taken. As Jerry said, it was also about the political education of those young people who, you know, didn't think that they had any agency. And so organising with other young people and giving them some of the skills to organise around those issues was um, was a massive thing. And just as a matter of interest, explain to people, because it's really important, and Jerry talked about it, but it's so, it's, it, it sort of seems so effective. Mm. But how do you start this process? Because there's a particular idea about relationships. And, you know, as a Labour Party member, a Labour MP, you know, sometimes we're good at relationships in the Labour Party, sometimes we're not so good at relationships. And, and I mean that not with people, about not people not getting on, but about knowing each other and understanding each other and then being able to work together. And that's sort of a really important principle, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, actually it goes to an example of, of, of um, when we were in your constituency party, um, and we were working with the with the Labour Party there. Lots of people had joined because of Jeremy Corbyn, and there were people obviously whose politics were different. And lots of people kind of knew each other's names, but no one really knew why they had joined. You know, they'd never shared with each other why they'd joined the Labour Party or the Labour movement. I mean, so, so I'll just cut in here and just say that we we invited these new members to a meeting, having gone to the. Um, uh, citizens training they then said right you can't just come here and then not do anything we're sending you away with a task what are you going to do so I said I'm going to organize in my own constituency a local campaign so we invited these new members and we all sat around in a circle not in a sort of conventional Labour Party meeting which tends to be the MP stands 
the front, you know, answers questions. But and people were asked to say, I think, and you were there, um, why have you joined the Labour Party? What do you want to do? Yeah. Sorry, Absolutely. but carry on. Yeah. So that was the beginning of a building relationships within a local Labour Party, and that's something that I've seen in quite a few. Labour Party meetings where actually there isn't that opportunity for people to really share why they're in the room together, but not only share why they're in the room together, but then decide to act together on something. So what came out of the work that we did in Doncaster is actually we set everyone in that meeting a challenge, which was go out and listen to the constituents about the big issues that are impacting on them. And so we set them a challenge of going out and having deep conversations with local residents about the stuff that was impacting on their lives. They all came back from that experience of going out and talking to constituents uh, about those big issues as being um, an empowering process, which they hadn't had the opportunity to do. Definitely. And to be fair, lots of MPs of all parties, I'm sure, do this all around the country. Uh, so we're not suggesting that we're some great exemplar, but but th- this then led to a campaign around Bright House, um, the people who sell white goods at vastly inflated prices to the poorest people, because there's what in one part of my constituency is a particular problem. And we worked with the credit union to get people signed up to the credit union. And there's some po- important things about that, aren't there? Because it was a specific campaign. We weren't trying to close down Bright House. We were trying to get a certain number of people, a few hundred people signed up to the credit union and away from Bright House. And then we set about that campaign. And the important principles there are that it was a sort of an achievable aim. It was something that would make people feel more empowered when we succeeded, which we broadly speaking did, and then sort of persuade them to do other things. And what I saw in my own constituency was this idea of collective leadership, that people who never would have thought about organising an action outside Bright House or, you know, getting out on the streets or whatever, felt sort of empowered to then do stuff. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things. Lots of people are initially um, nervous about taking their first political action. They haven't done it before. And I remember we were on our way to Bright House um, to do an action outside and people felt nervous about the fact that they were going to do it. But actually, once they'd done it, they felt exhilarated. And and it kind of, I think, taking that, that kind of political action kind of invigorates people. My sense is it changes the relationship with a, within a political party. The relationship changes with organising. That actually you build deeper relationships with the people that you are that you are representing and serving as well. And I think one of the things about the Bright House campaign was the fact that a year later, or just over a year later, you know, Bright House had had to pay out fifteen million pounds to people that they'd that they'd ripped off. Now, let me just move on to this question of how a political party adopts these techniques. And obviously, I've got a particular interest in the Labour Party, Mm. as you know. know, We've got now, in large part, thanks to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, over 500,000 members, I think 560,000 members. I mean, potentially, they are a huge resource to go and do this, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think... That, I mean, there's a lot to learn. And so one of the things with We Can Win is, you know, we've taken um, a lot of the, the model that Jerry was talking about, about building strong local communities. But we've also looked at the work that um, Bernie Sanders did in his election campaign, uh, which is called Big Organising, which is actually how do you use... Um, at scale. How do you, how do you scale? scale it, right? Yeah. How do you make systemic yeah. change happen? Because yeah. often... 
often a lot of the very local organizing can feel quite slow um, and it's not necessarily going to be transformative for the whole country. Um, and I think what the... Oscar Wilde, I think, famously said the problem about socialism is it takes too many evenings. <laughs> right, right. So maybe it's partly a too many evenings problem. Right. And I think that is the, the beauty in lots of ways of the organising that Bernie did in the election. And actually, Momentum of, uh, uh, did in the last general election as well. And we've tried to do with, um, with We Can Win. But my, my view is that every CLP across... Constituency Labour Party. Constituency Labour Party yeah. across the country should be uh, organising in their communities. But, I mean, to be, to be honest, we have listeners from all political parties. Any political party could do this, couldn't they? Um, theoretically. Theoretically. Th- theoretically. I mean, if they care about changing things in their area and they care about mobilising people, there's no reason why it should only be the Labour Party. I mean, I've got a particular interest in it being the Labour Party. But, but what you're saying is that these techniques aren't inconsistent with being in a political party. But some people might say, well, that's community organising, that's just a totally different kettle of fish from being what a political party might do. Yeah, I think, um, I think you're right. I think theoretically a lot of it is techniques. You know, the, whether you look at the organising of um, uh, the kind of Alinsky model of organising um, or you look at even the, the structures of the kind of big organising using, using digital... But fundamentally, I think what what um, there is an aspect of wanting to build power to make change happen. But what I have seen through the organising work that I've done uh, over the years is what fundamentally underpins it is a belief in social justice and equality and wanting to transform things. What is the prize uh, here? So uh, look, I think there are various prizes to be had, right? So... Um, if I can share a quick story with you, um, some of the work that we're currently doing at the moment and have been involved in. So there's a, you may have heard of the City of London Corporation, which yes, is have. the richest square mile in the world. Um, They've got a funny system of elections. Right. So if you're a business, you have 150 votes. So if you're a big business, depending on the size of your company, you have 150 votes or, or less, depending on the size. Um, but they have local elections, like uh, any other local authority. Um, however, if you're uh, Mr. Mohammed living in Mans- the Mansell Street estate, you only have one vote. So there is uh, a total uh, imbalance, of, imbalance power. of power. And so one of the things that I suppose I'm most proud of in the organising work that, that we've done is we spent a number of months working with residents on the... Uh, residential estates within uh, the city of London and we got them to think about the big issues that are impacting on them so we basically did like a big and what came up as the big things well so so initially the big things were poor housing so lots of the residents would look out of their uh, their windows which were actually kind of grimy with um, with the pollution from one of the most polluted roads in London that they were living on and you would see these gleaming towers from mm-hmm. the, from the city. Um, so they were, you know, massively frustrated with the the housing that they that they were um, having, and the 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 um, housing association that was running their housing was talking about rebuilding and potentially um, potentially putting more private housing in as well, which would have shrunk the the actual accommodation of local people. So we helped them to organise around. Um, 
making a bit of a stand with the with not only the city of London but also the housing provider as well um, around. And has it worked the campaign? Well, so the the housing provider are now having to revisit their plans. So it has had an effect. But what was really interesting about it as well is out of that organising work that we did, what emerged were a number of people on the estate. Who are new, now leaders. Who, not only leaders, so they, they ran those campaigns and they then decided uh, about four months later there was a City of London election, which normally you have businesses basically mm-hmm. putting up mm-hmm. candidates for. Mm-hmm. So as residents, they actually decided to stand for election and they'd not seen themselves in that position before they stood and because of the relationships that built on the estates they actually got the highest number of votes um in the in the local elections um and as a result of that there is now um for the first time ever there is five labor candidates in the city of london which has never been before last question for me i think is this some people listening to this will be like incredibly excited about this idea. Maybe they'll have heard it for the first time, and maybe they'll be thinking, well, "What do I do now? What? How do I know? How do I? You know, I'll go and read Solinsky's book, maybe Rules for Radicals. But how do I? How do I do more? Here's your chance to plug. We can win. <laughs> the the first thing to do is yes, we do. We can win. Does community organising training? Um, we're actually currently. Uh, working up and down the country, but we're actually focusing our energies on areas that voted bre- uh, Brexit. So just going back to what Jerry was saying as well. So and we're, we're doing a piece of work there in my right, constituency. Right. And so we're spending time in places like Wolverhampton. Um, we're spending time in South Wales, in South Yorkshire and the East Midlands. And we're doing organising around those areas. So we're, we're really up for coming to places and doing organising training. So if you're interested... We'll supply a link to your website. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So, Jeff, what did you think of uh, those two interviews? I, I found it very inspiring. Uh, listening to Jerry, I found myself thinking, oh, God, I should be doing something with my life. Well, thanks very much. I mean, something <laughs> other than this with my life. Um, And I enjoyed listening to Dan as well. I thought there was something interesting about the way that people will get behind issues that affect them. I think especially in the UK, there can be this cynicism around political parties and this attitude, oh, they're all the same. But if a way in to being politically engaged can be around an issue, I think that could be quite powerful. I also find it interesting over here in the States. I've always had this kind of feeling that because the state plays a smaller role here, that people are quicker to get involved in community projects. And uh, maybe there's something of that in what Jerry was saying. You see, I think what's important about it, and hopefully this came through in some of the conversations, is David Cameron had this idea of the big society, but that always felt like a replacement for the state. I, I think this is actually about engaging with power whether it's in the government or the private sector to force change you know it's not about it's not about i mean volunteering is fine and important but it's not about sort of substituting for the state i mean there's just and there are amazing stories when i went on this training the story that sticks in my mind may sound a bit kind of unusual or surprising to to begin with but the citizens uk their branch in wales was doing some work with somali young people who were in cardiff and there'd been some story about a small number of them being part of Al-Shabaab, the terrorist group, and they felt incredibly sort of put upon and disempowered. And so citizens went in and organized them and, and, or talked to them and said, 
you know, what do you care about in Cardiff? And they said, you know, however big, however small. And they said, actually, one thing we care about in Cardiff is that there's no halal Nando's. There are three. Right. Na- there are three Nando's in Cardiff, and none of them ha- serve halal meat. And we quite like the idea of, of going to Nando's because, actually, in other parts of the country, in London, I think there was a halal Nando's. And so he said, "Look, if, if, you know, if we could change one thing about Cardiff, that w- that would be it." And so citizens went in and worked with them, and you know, they, these young people felt incredibly disempowered. Thought they had absolutely no power, and. So they basically wrote to Nando's. Nando's were pretty kind of standoffish. And and mm. in the end, they managed to get Nando's to come to a meeting. And these suits from Nando's arrived and they had like a PowerPoint presentation about why they couldn't possibly open a halal Nando's in Cardiff or couldn't change one of the Nando's to halal Nando's. The Somali young people completely disarmed them because they arrived and it was in the middle of Ramadan. So the Somali young people couldn't eat. And they said, look, we can't eat, but we've baked you some Welsh cakes. And so the, the Nando's suits were thinking, oh, God, uh, this is pretty, this is tricky. Uh, and they said, and we'd like to start by going around with us all saying how much we like Nando's and why we like Nando's. Now, the PowerPoint presentation from Nando's never got delivered. And, <laughs> and, and the Somali young people, and this is quite an important thing about the techniques of organizing. They were both open and charming, but they were also had a threat, which was that the Bishop of Cardiff was going to dress up as a chicken outside the Nando's <laughs> if the Nando's didn't didn't succumb. Anyway, the Nando's people <laughs> essentially fled uh, and thought, right, we better work out what to do. Long story short, they 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 got their halal Nando's. That's wonderful. But the important thing about this is not just the halal Nando's. The important thing about this is that those young people then became you know, they had their consciousness raised. They became part of campaigns on the living wage. They suddenly thought, you know, we've got power. And I think part of this is about understanding that the the techniques of community organising aren't just about what you win, but the effect on the people who are part of the campaign, which was kind of what I was saying about my own experience in Doncaster. You know that I just said that I feel like I should be doing something more with my life. Yes, I want to see a vegetarian Kentucky Fried Chicken in Stoke Newington. You're on. I want to threaten that you are going to parade up and down outside dressed as Colonel Sanders. Okay. Unless they comply with my demands. You're on. And I think it should be renamed Kentucky Fried Jeff. (laughs) I'm not sure about that. (laughs) You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So we received a huge response to last week's episode on the Gender Recognition Act, um, especially from people who are affected by it, people who live with this. And it was quite humbling, the response we received. Going to um, read some of the email out now. This one comes from the mum of a 14-year-old trans boy who says, thanks for devoting your recent podcast to wise, impassioned, well-informed and humorous chat about the recent media nonsense about trans children and young people and the backlash starting before the Gender Recognition Act is reformed. The dad you spoke to was right. This media storm only hurts those who are never given a voice to argue back. Dr. Webberly was, as ever, informative and knowledgeable. She really doesn't deserve the stick she's had for trying to make a difficult situation better. She's put her reputation and career in jeopardy to help young people in real distress. And Paris Lees, gosh, an actual trans person, was witty and informative. She is such a great advocate for trans rights. Every MP in Westminster needs to hear this as a counterbalance to the lies and hatred being spread by the right-wing media in Britain. Anything that helps make life easier for my son 
son to grow up as he knows he is in an environment of love and acceptance is an improvement. Thanks and keep up the good work. Yeah, and I, I was really struck, Jeff, by the, the number of messages we had from people in the trans community and also in particular, I think, uh, parents of trans kids who felt that... Uh, you know, their voices hadn't been heard in this debate and they were very pleased yeah. that, that, that they had. Now, now not everyone obviously uh, agreed. Uh, Cherry Austin, who manages a website called Fair Play for Women, sent an email uh, which covered a, a number of points. And I'm just going to read some of it out. Uh, Hello, Ed, she says. Uh, I manage the Fair Play for Women uh, website. We're a group of mainly women defending the rights and freedoms of women and girls. Our overriding concern at the moment is transgender rights, in inverted commas, because these rights, as asked, remove rights from female people. Uh, And then she goes through five of her biggest concerns. How are we defining woman and girl? If it's just a feeling, brackets, or a small part of the brain, are we to ignore reproductive biology? Uh, Second, it isn't safe to invite adult males into private female spaces. Third, men are far bigger and stronger than women, even after hormone treatment, and our physiology is fundamentally different. Uh, fourth, the supposedly voiceless trans campaign is exceptionally loud and well-funded. And fifth, it's impossible to support women's rights if anyone can be a woman. And she concludes, the effect of not being able to define women is a complete erasure of women and girls from public life and policy. Nobody wishes to harm transgender people, but they already do have the same rights as any other citizen. Their demand for acceptance that trans women are women would result in the loss of all sex-specific rights for women and girls. We received this email from Lauren, who described herself as a lesbian and a feminist. uh, And she's taking issue with the idea that trans rights are in any way a threat to women's rights. She says, I'm a lesbian feminist who finds it grossly offensive that transphobic cisgender feminists believe that transgender women are attempting to undermine or threaten cisgender women's rights. While there exists a small but vocal minority with political power and access to media platforms who decry the advances made in trans rights over the years, there are many lesbian feminists who support trans rights and know that our liberation struggle is intertwined. Trans misogyny is another form of patriarchy. It's another permutation of women's oppression and we should not throw trans women under the bus in a misguided, dangerous attempt to advocate for the rights of cisgender women. There is no mythological, homogenous experience of womanhood which is born from owning a vagina. Black women, queer women, disabled women and working class, to name a few, have always been dehumanised and denigrated by society in particular ways and their struggles have rarely been prioritised by mainstream feminism. The same rings true for trans women. Lastly, I regularly access women-only spaces and do not in any way feel threatened or unsafe by trans women accessing those spaces, nor do any of the women I've spoken to in those spaces. This isn't a real concern, it's just being used to undermine progress on trans rights and silence people who disagree with them. Thanks for a great episode which challenged so many myths that have been perpetuated in the media. Best Lauren. And then we received this from Zoe who raised concerns that self-declaration will have negative consequences for women. Who says, only women are that should be such a final and simple statement. It should mean only females are allowed to access here. It should mean women, you are safe here. It should mean no men, you are not welcome. But the consultation on the gender identity bill in the autumn proposes to change all this. If the legislation happens, then anyone of either sex will have an open invitation to enter those safe spaces. We've got, uh, I suppose it's a, a response to that, and indeed some other concerns that have been raised by 
uh, Jane Fay, uh, Dear Ed and Jeff, great podcast. The attempt by some to position trans rights as a threat to women's rights and spaces is not founded on evidence. There is far more violence in lose from dot, 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 GOP politicians in America, clergy, brackets worldwide, and loo attendants. If they actually cared about safety, they'd be banning male loo attendants. Topshop, they're having a fit over mixed changing rooms. I was in Topshop, Oxford Street last week, and there was a guy on duty in the changing room. Do they actually use these facilities? And she goes on to, to conclude, early intervention in treatment is a big issue, but your podcast sets out clearly when interventions can and should happen, to get straight in their own heads what interventions happen at what age. Late intervention creates serious grief if you are trans. It is a balance of risk argument, and the anti-trans lobby are trying to muddy the waters and confuse an already complicated discussion. Thanks again for a positive and informative piece. And lastly, Sarah Lennox contacted us on the fears that self-declaration will have a negative impact on women. And she says this, Thank you for your excellent podcast on trans issues. This seems very relevant. Will the sky fall in if the UK Gender Recognition Act is reformed to allow self-declaration? The Republic of Ireland, she points out, quietly adopted self-declaration in 2015, where it now takes only a few weeks to legally change your gender. This compares to the current two-year minimum in the UK. So has the sky fallen in? Hardly. Irish government data released earlier this year shows that only 240 GRCs have been issued, a modest take-up in a country of 5 million people. All evidence to date suggests the only impact has been to afford vital legal recognition to the country's trans community. The Irish government has flagged up no issues, she says in capitals, with a self-declaration law in the nearly two years it has been in operation. I mean, look, Jeff, obviously, and, and you know, we've read out only a sample of the emails. I would say the, the balance of the emails was strongly in favour of what people heard of in our podcast in terms of hearing the voices um, of people from the trans community. And I, I think it was very, very good that we did that. Uh, this has obviously become uh, an incredibly um, charged debate. Um, I, you know, I hope there's a kind of way that some kind of dialogue can be had. But, but I, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I absolutely stand by hearing, you know, voices from the transgender community because I, d I don't think they get a proper look in uh, in in a, in a lot of the media coverage that we've seen. Yeah, I think in in all of this, whatever we think as straight men is the least relevant. Uh, but something I've seen over the past week and been quite humbled by is the response from the transgender community. And I, as I said at the beginning of last week's episode, I, I entered into it feeling quite ignorant, and I certainly had no idea that those people felt as as voiceless as um, as they perhaps do. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here in Chicago to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Emily Galati. Hello. Hello. Um, am, am I saying Galati right? Yeah. Hello from London. Hello. London calling. <laughs> have you ever been to London? I have not been to London. I would love to go to London. How many spare rooms have you got, Ed? Enough. Definitely. You're invited, Emily. Oh, good. Okay, I will book a ticket now. He'll have to check on his Airbnb schedule beforehand, but I'm sure it <laughs> won't be a problem. Uh, will you tell me a bit about Chicago as a comedy city? Oh, it's a great comedy city. It's, uh, it's home to Second City, which is where everyone on SNL comes from. Yes, it's like a big Im improv theatre, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, like um, I mean, Colbert was there, uh, Steve Carell, Tina Fey. A lot of improv. Second tier stand-up scene. It's not New York or LA, but a ton of great stand-ups come out of here. Although you did move away from here. I did move away <laughs> from here. Because it's only second tier. Yeah. I mean, it's really high second tier, but it's, yeah, you got to go someplace else. 
So, so what else is to do in Chicago? Eat. Right. <laughs> big, like big portions, I've found. Huge portions. Uh, so much food. I ate so much last night. I'll be full through Thanksgiving, is what I think. Uh, Italian beef sandwiches. That's the thing. Pizza. And is Chicago very, um, very proud of President Obama? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think everything in Chicago is being renamed Obama. <laughs> I think. I think they're just going to rename the town Obama. Obama town. Chicago Obama. And how's the, how's the Trump shame in Chicago? Oh, I mean, the Trump shame throughout America is pretty <laughs> hefty, unless you're like in Alabama. Right. Um, I can say from my experience, no matter where I wake up in America, I wake up with a ton of shame <laughs> and anger. And uh, that's been my life for a year. And I miss just being depressed. Just normal depression was better. <laughs> like, it was just, better than Trump depression. Yes. Yeah. Trump anger and hatred. Yeah. Just, uh, just not wanting to get out of bed because, you know, for no reason was better than waking up like, oh, what happened today? I hate the world. But you, you must play all over the country. And do you, you know, do you find that your kind of um, urban metropolitan liberal humor does great in, in certain places where there may be a prevalence of Trump voters? In, in liberal places, it does very, very well. In um, non-liberal places, it is. Whoa, man, I did. Uh, I have a whole section on being pro-choice and uh, anti-abortion laws, and I did them in Montana <laughs> a couple, about a month ago, and it was not good. I did a 10-minute set in a theater, and uh, my first words were, say what you will about Trump. And I got, boo, boo, fuck you. I was six words into my set. I wow. got heckled almost the whole set. And I was like, well, we're just going to keep going. <laughs> like, wow. What do, you, yeah. what, do you do when that, what do you do when that happens? Um, sometimes you respond. Like I had some good responses to them, which I think made them kind of like me. Um, because was, I was doing like a contest. I was a, a contest where you voted on what comic you liked. And I said, you know what? You, why don't you just try voting for a woman? Tonight would be a good shot. Like, why don't you just <laughs> just give it a shot? See how it feels. Um, I don't remember what else I said to them, but I had good retorts. Sometimes people, I had someone slam a door, like throw, like almost like kind of throw a chair, like slam a door and walk out. And it was so awkward. Like I didn't have anything. I was just like, I'm kind of scared. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. It's quite hard to respond to that really. Yeah, like that one. I was like, someone just needs to walk me to my car after the show. God, this stuff sounds like like anxiety dreams. It sounds like you're describing nightmares. It was, yeah, those aren't good. But then you go to like Chicago or liberal Madison and they love it. So, <laughs> yay. And if I may ask this question, because we, we discussed this kind of in the context of Brexit. Do you, do you have anyone you know, friends, family who are Trump supporters? Close personal people? No, thank goodness. Um <laughs> Definitely people online that I'm like, I didn't know that's how you felt. And uh, okay. Like, but no one, no one close to my family. My dad's a Republican, and, uh, but not a Trump supporter and didn't, didn't even vote for president. So he's a Republican who didn't vote for Trump. Didn't vote for Trump. Did he, right. did he just not vote or did he, he vote for He didn't vote for president. Right. Yeah. So, but does he like turn a blind eye to some of the stuff because there are tax cuts coming? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> like, right. Uh, yeah. And for a while, I thought he was a little too... He definitely wasn't pro-Trump, but I mean, he's Republican, so I guess we butt heads on politics a lot. But now he's really come around on just like all the time, just being like, this is just ridiculous. Like, yeah, he's a very unhappy Republican, I would say. Right. I think there's a few of them. As a Republican, what does he dislike most about Trump as a matter of interest? What his, I mean, his general being. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what you, 
I mean, the man's insane. I mean, what are you... Just that he's dragging the office of president yeah, through the mud you, on a daily basis. I don't have a positive about him. Like, what do you even... Even... I, I would say my dad's fiscally... Definitely the typical fiscally conservative, socially liberal. The one thing we can thank Trump for is he's, br- he's brought you and your father back together, or together, politically. <laughs> he's <laughs> Somewhat, united yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Emily's here to pitch some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Emily, what's your first oh, one? Trying to make people happy. So, okay, this is what I was thinking about. Yeah. Uh, I'm an American, and this is a British show, so I was trying to think of things. I know the British like, like... People seem to really, really like it, I think, when you uh, tax tea, when you uh, make an import tariff on tea. Right. You raise the price of tea like two pence. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there have been two successful boycotts in U.S. history, and one is tea, and the other is the Dixie Chicks. So, <laughs> um, And if we've been successful with tea once, then, then why not try it again? Why not try it again? Yeah. Just bring everyone right or left together if we just raise the price of tea. Ed, didn't you used to live in Boston? I did. I did. And it, and it is a very, um, you know, the, the whole Boston Tea Party thing is, is extremely famous, infamous. Um, so you think if we, if we impose this tax, it might help America? Yeah, I think so. I think it'll just help us bring, like, a common enemy. Bring the country together. <laughs> yeah. Like, we can, we like or hate Trump, we all hate a tax on tea, right? <laughs> if we started a tea trade war between Britain and America, it might, it might be the thing that unites America. Yeah, and also, who doesn't love a reboot, you know? It's really <laughs> what Hollywood's been doing. All-female reboot of the Boston Tea Party is what the, I'm going to suggest. The yeah, sequel. That, that could work. Yeah. What, what do you have next? But the other idea that I think you guys had that really improved society was to establish an embargo on firearms, parts, and ammunition for the American colonies. I actually think that one was really good. <laughs> like, that was good job, you. Yes, yeah. Um, it, it is mystifying to us in the UK, the, uh, the, the lack of gun control yeah. over here. And I'm yet to hear a convincing argument. There's not a convincing argument. Gun murders are a big issue in Chicago, aren't they? It's a, I mean, it's a problem in all of America. You can't just, it's weird to signal out Chicago when mass shootings are happening everywhere. It always seems strange to me that people can, can be so vehement about defending an amendment. Like an amendment is an amendment. It proves that something could be changed yes. if it's not working. Yes, it was added on to the original yes. document because it changed. Yeah. And then like, you can't change that. Yeah. Mm-mm. <laughs> and it feels like of all the things that might possibly change in America, in a way, looking at it from afar, it feels like the most difficult thing of all to change. You have these terrible shootings at schools, in you know, public places, and they just happen. And, you know, there are multiple people killed. And then nothing, nothing seems to change. It, it, it is, uh, as Jeff said, it's, you know, it's so mystifying to us because we had this terrible shooting in uh, Hungerford and then in Dunblane. And, and, you know, we basically banned firearms. Yeah, Australia did the same thing, right? Is yeah. That the, yeah, and, uh, we don't do that in America. Do you think there's any chance of it changing? In America? No, I don't. I don't see any Republican in Congress ever falling on their sword. And being like, yep, we need this. And even some Democrats, if the gun lobby is mm-hmm. strong enough. Yeah. Like, I just, there's too much money. So, unfortunately, no, I don't think it's going to change. I hope and pray and wish everyone will come to their senses. But And, and is it like, you know, when you talk about Trump, everybody you know in your social circle is, is anti-Trump. Is it the same with guns? You've lived in Arizona. You've lived here in, in Chicago, Illinois, in New York. You're off to Wisconsin. Um, 
Is that an opinion that varies amongst people you know? You know, I don't know many gun owners. Surprisingly, for living in all these places, I don't know many gun owners. And I think it's... I even get real creeped out if someone's like, I have a gun in the house. Because that can be a a misconception that people have of Americans, uh, you know, over in Europe or or anywhere, is that, you know, there are lots and lots of routine tooting gun owners, but I've I've yet to meet one. Yeah, I think... uh a very small percentage of the population owns a majority of the guns is how it works. Like people who have one gun generally have nine. Right. You know, it's, just in case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Arizona is like cowboy. Like you would think everyone has it. They have concealing carry laws. So maybe everyone I know is carrying guns. and I just don't know because they concealed <laughs> them well. I took my 19 month old son to a library yesterday and they had a no guns sign in the window. Yeah. Oh my like, you don't, God. Surely you don't, you don't need that sign. They're everywhere. They're in like a nice suburb of Chicago. We, we have kind of keep your voice down rather than no guns. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 You can yell in the library. You just can't shoot things. <laughs> like that's the difference in America. I don't know how you she guys whiz. study, but. Um, yeah, that's so creepy when you see those. I don't like that at all. Yeah. So you have another one? Yeah, every week. I think everyone should get to play with a baby elephant for an hour. Oh, oh this is an excellent policy. We embraced yeah. a baby elephant. That could heal America. You've got this yeah. terrible d- divide between uh, uh, Trump and the non-Trump people, and you struggle to see how the divides in society can mm-hmm. be healed. But baby elephants definitely could be the thing to do. They're adorable. They are, when I get really mad at Trump, I Google <laughs> baby elephant videos. Have you ever played with a baby elephant? I haven't. It's a dream. That's also why I want to enact it as a policy. Well, they say about the American dream, you can be whatever you want to be, and you could be somebody who plays <laughs> with a baby, baby elephant. Elephants. Yeah. <laughs> a chicken in every pot and a baby elephant yeah, for every, every family. Yeah, in every backyard. Yeah. <laughs> Two cars, a baby elephant. <laughs> it's the new American dream. Yeah, I think that's what needs to happen. Right. We definitely buy the baby elephant. If people want to look you up, we, we, um, we watched a video of you on Conan O'Brien's mm-hmm. talk show, which we all enjoyed very much indeed. And and, you know, maybe you should come over to the UK and do Edinburgh or play in London or one of the cities. Those are all things that I want to do. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emily. It was great to have you. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Thanks to Emily. And it's, uh, it's, it's fairly much time for me to say goodbye from no, the Windy City. Uh, oh, I'll tell you, news, news of the budget hasn't reached this side of the uh, Atlantic yet. How's Is it, it not leading it CNN? There? No, surprisingly. Spreadsheet Phil is not leading CNN. No, it's been been all about Donald Trump pardoning a turkey. (laughs) How did they tell the difference? Uh, so how how's how's he done, Mr. Hammond? Oh, I mean it's pretty thin gruel, actually. I mean he's got a, it's it's kind of the milliverse very light. I mean he's he's got uh, my stamp duty policy, my what was dis- used to be described as the Mugabe style land seizure policy uh, that I had. In, that's what the Tories used to call it in 2015. And they've now put Oliver Letwin in charge of implementing it. So, I mean, it's kind of like it is definitely peak 2017. Oliver <laughs> Letwin in charge of the Mugabe style land seizures for the Conservative <laughs> government. Um, but but it's um, I'd, I'd say it's, I think it's a kind of pretty quickly forgotten, forgotten budget. I think CNN made the right decision. You're not going to be eating the pardon turkey anyway. No, no, uh, no, no turkey for me. Just the aforementioned pies made by Peggy Lemley. Yeah. Um, I can give you a good Thanksgiving film recommendation if you like. Oh, go on. I always hate it when people go to America and they're like ahead on the films and they feel all smart and smug, basically. <laughs> That's not what I was going to say. I was going to give you a classic, which oh, is go on. Oh, Thanksgiving. Sorry, sorry. But, yeah, I overreacted. Yeah, you said that. <laughs> 
Um, planes, trains, and automobiles. Oh yeah, it's the quintessential Thanksgiving film. Steve Martin trying to get home for Thanksgiving from New York to Chicago. And when do you get home, Jeff? Most importantly, because I'm going to be, you know, on your doorstep. Sarah, Eugene, and you and me will be reunited. Well, you could come and meet us at the airport. That's true. Actually, I could hold up a sign, make a little banner for us. Yeah. When do you When do you get back? Uh, I'll be back in time for next week's episode. Aww, um, shall shall we thank Shall we thank our guests? I thought um, Jerry was incredible, and, and what um, what a piece of information that the White House's gain in Obama was fiction writing's loss. Yeah, that's like a, Obama toyed with being a novelist. That is an exclusive, isn't it? Yeah, we should sell it to CNN. <laughs> I think you'd be quite good on CNN. I think they'd like your sort of accent and your general sort of uh, laconic style. I see you as a sort of Wolf Blitzer figure. You're just basing that on facial hair, though, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I am, actually. Yes. We'll post a we picture should... of Wolf Blitzer on the Facebook page. <laughs> Wolf Blitzer and Jeff, you know, uh, surely some mistake. One of the greatest names in journalism as well. I know, I know, I know. Maybe you should be, maybe you should be Wolf Lloyd. Although the other famous wolf was the uh, wolf from Gladiators. I'm, that's sort of slightly gone over my head. That's, that's a popular culture reference. Which Hang is... on. You, you weren't watching Gladiators in the early 90s, Ed. This is, this is very surprising to me. No, no. Labour Party conference videos. Uh, we should thank Dan as well while we're at it. Yes. We thank Dan Firth. We thank Jerry Kelman. I know you have already. We thank Emily as well. And our thanks, as ever, to our brilliant little team. Emma Corsham produces and edits the podcast with backup and research from Alex Feisbrice and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dents. Ed Seed made the music. And Emily Power designed our artwork. Uh, mm-hmm. We thank you. Um, I think we should thank Sarah um, and Eugene for, let, for letting you kind of, you know, spend time with me on your on your holes. Yeah, my mother-in-law, of we course. Definitely thank so your mother-in-law, Peggy Lemley, for the pie Peggy. without the yes. animal fat. <laughs> yes, yeah. From London, he's been Ed Miliband. From Chicago, he's been Jeff Lloyd. <laughs> And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.